Welcome Sun Valley Church to another episode of Voice of the Valley. Uh, This is your guest host this morning, John Schubert, and I have with me uh, Rick Whitmer, and we're anxious to uh, come to you again today and discuss some more important things. As you know, we've been working through our uh, statement of faith, and today we're going to be covering things of eschatology, and we're going to be covering a personal eschatology and then an overview of the other areas of eschatology. And the reason I'm hosting is because I'm going to ask Pastor Rick to kind of give a summary of these things, and then uh, I'll I'll speak up on occasion. But uh, I thought it would be better than than Rick just introducing himself as <laughs> the host and the guest. So I am your host. Rick is my guest, and we're here to um, be blessed by these things. So, and the, you know, the big reason, you know, that, that either of us are hosting anything on this podcast is because Jeremy took that one day off a of year thing last week. Who's Jeremy? I can't remember. Who could anymore? I mean, yeah. he's gone most of the time now. Yeah. And, and he ran with it. He's like, oh, you think I get one day off a of year? Watch this. Yeah. I mean, he's not getting paid. He doesn't have a job, but he's off. Come on, Jeremiah. Not <laughs> <laughs> picking up what you're laying down here. <laughs> So, anyways, we're going to discuss this. So, Rick, why don't you why don't you uh, kind of give us a rundown of our of our doctrinal statement? If if you would like, I could read the doctrinal statement, and then you could kind of comment on that. Is that how you'd like to do this? Sure. Yeah. You know, because when we get to our you know the end of our doctrinal statement, we have a whole page on the things to come, and that yes. kind of is broken down in two sections. Like like you said, personal eschatology. And then what we can call cosmic eschatology. And yeah, if you want to read the part on personal eschatology, that would give us a, a kind First of... First of all, this, this word eschatology, it seems a little bit out of order in the English language. Yeah. Uh, what What is that? Where does it come from? Um, eschatology just means uh, a word about the last things. Study of last things. Study of last things. And so in theology, yeah. when we're talking about things to come. Yes. The future... Um, most people think, you know, in America about left behind, yep, because uh, that's really what popularized um, a study of the last things for a whole generation. The, my yeah. generation growing up, you yep. know, that was when those books were being published. What's interesting about about the study of, of eschatology is that it's been a it's been a a, a very common um, interest for the church for a long time. I grew up in a home where uh, we discussed the second coming of the Lord all the time, and it was always on my parents' lips and right. in their hearts. And uh, it seems that um, even though you know the Left Behind series, uh, I think by Jerry Jenkins, right? Is that who wrote that? Yeah, and Tim LaHaye. Yeah, and Tim LaHaye. And so we 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 ha- have had a resurgence really of in an interest of eschatology, which is a good thing. Um, because it's such an encouragement to God's people to realize that the Lord is returning uh, and we will forever be with him one glad morning. But let me read for yeah, you. I, and that's something that everybody believes as a, as a Christian. Yes. That we will be with yeah. him. And I don't know, I mean, real quick, did you did you read the Left Behind books when they came out? We did. Yeah, we actually read them to our kids. I'm not sure, so sure we should have, but um, there are some <laughs> things in there that... that you know, I don't really embrace, and, yeah. and yet we, we read them because a lot of people were, and it was encouraged yeah. by churches and 
you know, different groups to read those. So we did, and we read them to our kids and yeah. scared the daylights out of our kids, but <laughs> but uh, we did it. <laughs> and, I, and I never read them. Yeah. Uh, and looking back, I'm, I'm kind of glad. Yeah. You know, and, and they're just, they kept proliferating. And, you know, but I, I do think about that song, uh, Wish We'd All Been Ready. Do you yes. remember that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wish we'd all been ready and hope I'm not left behind. <laughs> right. What am I going to do if I uh, wake up and my parents are gone? <laughs> freak out. <laughs> yeah. Run around the neighborhood. You can get some good jokes out of that at church, you know. You know, oh, yeah. someone who's gone. Well, <laughs> bigger question is why are you still here? Yes, what are you doing here? <laughs> Uh-oh. There goes your head. <laughs> That's the only way you're going to survive this thing yeah. is if you lose your head. So... <laughs> Anyways, back to our statement of faith. Um, we have here uh, this concise statement. And I'll read it for you. We teach that physical death involves no loss of our immaterial consciousness, that there is a separation of soul and body, that the soul of the redeemed passes immediately into the presence of Christ, and that for the redeemed, such separation will continue until the rapture, which initiates, initiates the first resurrection when our soul and body will be reunited to be glorified forever with the, our Lord. Until that time, the souls of the redeemed in Christ remain joy, in joyful fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. We teach that the body, the bodily resurrection of all men, the saved to eternal life, and the unsaved to judgment and everlasting punishment. We teach that the souls of the unsaved at death are kept under punishment until the final resurrection, when the soul and the resurrect, resurrection body will be re, reunited or united. Uh, they shall then appear at the great white throne judgment and shall be cast into hell, the lake of fire cut off from life of God forever. That's pretty stark stuff. Yeah, it's pretty black and white. Yeah. And, you know, people don't like to think about death very often. In fact, as a culture, we, we try to not think about it. I think, I think that uh, we're more apt to think about death than we are about eternal condemnation. Yes. Yeah, because everybody knows, I mean, nobody can avoid death, right, at this point. Nope. Uh, we haven't come up with the technology. Everybody tries to as much as possible. Right. But, you know, it's the things to come for our soul that we, you know, we live in a materialistic age. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we, the, our whole culture is naturalistic. Yes. We don't acknowledge as a culture the things yet to come because there's no agreement on what those things are. But everybody can see that everybody physically dies. Right. And Paul kind of addressed this in Second Corinthians when he said the things that are seen are temporary or temporal. Yeah. The things that are unseen are eternal. And so the human, you know, this side of eternity only thinks about really mostly material things. It's That's all we really can manage because everything else is really uncertain, unknown, at least to those who don't have the revealed Word of God. Yeah, yeah, but when we look at Scripture, it's very plain what is to come. Right, right. No matter whether you're a believer or you're an unbeliever. Right. The question is, do you accept that as such? Yes. It doesn't change the reality of it. And there's, you know, that's why I always refer to famous atheists who have gone as former atheists because they aren't anymore. Yes, you know, right. they understand these things quite clearly. Yes. There are no atheists after death. That's right. So, yeah. or agnostics. Yeah. <laughs> and then if you take Romans 1 literally, you know, we could say there's no real atheists or agnostics to Today. now. Right. Just, de- right. just deniers. <laughs> right. But, yeah. you know, we're, we're talking about personal eschatology. We're talking about what happens to you and to me individually at the moment of death. And, you know, kind of my... F- 
personal definition of death is when your my soul and my body get a divorce. Right. That's death. Yeah. You know, and so our statement of faith says that it, yeah, there's a separation of soul and body. That's the only difference between your definition and reality is <laughs> is that there's a reunion of those two things of soul and body. And usually human divorce doesn't end in any kind of reunion or remarriage. Right. That's so, what's coming. Yeah. So that, that reunion is one of the glorious things about our faith. Yeah. And one of the great encouragements of scripture. Paul speaks of this as he talks about our personal eschatology, being reunited with the body um, when we see Jesus. Yeah, and so that, and that's a massive part of it, that we are, as humans, we are embodied souls. Right. That's part of what it means to be human. And one of the, the biggest misconceptions, I think, that, that um, pop Christianity has put out there is this idea that we're going to be disembodied souls in a celestial heaven for all eternity. Yeah, like uh, our spirit will be sitting on clouds playing harps. Yeah. You know, that kind of uh, picture. Yeah, the reality is that right now, when we go for a hike in the mountains um, to the glory of God, we are far more, we're far closer to what will be for eternity right. than that picture. Yes. Theologians refer to where we would be now if we died as the intermediate heaven right. for a reason. Yes. Paul calls it the third heaven right. in Second Corinthians 12. And then the new heaven and new earth come about along with our new bodies, and we are in a physical experience on a new planet. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. It is. And, and it I think is. that's kind of one of the major contributions of uh, Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, that came out 15 years ago or whatever, um, that that kind of put that back on the scene for a lot of Christians who had kind of ignored that subtly and unintentionally. I just thought there would be an eternal heavenly dwelling. Yeah. Right. You know, but Paul says here um, in Second Corinthians 5 that uh, we're confident Yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And so it is that instantaneous moment where, you know, in the, in the terms of uh, John Bunyan and Pilgrim's Progress, we cross the River Jordan, as it were, which is a metaphor for death. Right. And we're in the celestial city. We're with the Lord at that moment. There's no, no biblical evidence for purgatory or uh, soul sleep. Right. But it's an instantaneous moment yeah. of realizing the hope that we have. Yeah. So um, providentially, yesterday, I was with uh, our elder, Dennis Smith, and his wife, April. And in, I, w- I just came to replace some people who were with, you know, sitting with Dennis and helping him with April, which Sun Valley Church has been doing a fantastic job of over the past month of just ministering and loving uh, Dennis and April yes. as she approaches this this very thing that we're talking about. And last night at 8.13, April, I was, be, I was able to witness this, and what a privilege and joy uh, and blessing it was to be able to be there uh, when she passed on to be with Jesus. She, she actually entered the presence of Christ herself in that moment. Yeah. One moment in her, her racked physical body, and in the next moment, as you said, separated from her body, her soul with Christ, to be forever with the Lord. Yes. What, a, what an amazing experience that is for the Christian. Uh, as, as sorrowful as it is, and it is sorrowful and heart-wrenching to participate, and especially if you're the spouse or parent or child of someone going to be with Christ— 
we don't not sorrow over their separation. We do sorrow in, indeed, but the the joy of, of heart knowing that they are with Christ. Absent from the body means absent from pain, absence from sorrow, absence from disappointment, absence from sin, forever joyful in yes. God's presence. What a an amazing thought that we have facing all of us who are in Christ. Yeah. Wonderful it is thing. In, in a merciful thing that God doesn't leave us to deal with the effects of a sin-broken world in bodies that are um, decaying and, and getting diseases and sickness indefinitely well which is you know that that makes me think of of the expulsion from the garden yeah in the garden there was no death outside the garden death was possible and so getting kicked out of the garden was an act of grace and mercy by god towards adam and eve and the human race like you said who can imagine living perpetually in this body of sin Mm -hmm. horrible yeah, and and it is a you know, and death is called an enemy, and it's going to be you know, Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen, it's the last enemy to be destroyed, and yeah. so I think what you said is really important. It's not that this isn't sorrowful. It's not that this isn't painful, and not as things were originally meant to be, but in God's mercy, it becomes a gateway to the way things are supposed to be yeah. yet to come. And in the way that Paul puts it, um, in in. First Thessalonians 4, he was talking to a church that was confused because of the death of some of the, the brothers and sisters among them. And they thought that because they died, they would miss the Lord's return. Right. And, and Paul says to them, you know, he doesn't say, don't grieve, don't worry, be happy. And he doesn't say any of that. He acknowledges the sorrow. And he says, um, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Right. So there, he he points to the fact that even though there is a sorrow for believers, it's a sorrow, it's a hope-filled sorrow. Right. And so we grieve differently for one another than the world grieves. Right. Who has no hope. And then if if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about the rapture, that when the Lord returns in the air, we who are alive will meet him, but we're not going first. The first people will be those who have died in Christ. They're, they will be resurrected, right. and their glorified bodies will be united with their souls. Yeah. What do you know about these glorified bodies? They're super awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jesus. That's a biblical description. I, I mean, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will be with him in the air and be yeah. transformed. Yeah. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in the twinkling of an eye. And so it'll be a body like our body now, but completely freed from the shackles of decay, from illness. We see a picture of it with Jesus when mm-hmm. he was resurrected. Mm-hmm. And he was able to do things that bodies don't like do. Like our body, but way better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You so know, um, uh, as I would expect, I, I'm having a hard time getting my experience out of my mind and I'm not trying to, but uh, you know, it, it's in, it's in front and center of my mind right now, uh, being with, with April as she went to be with Jesus yesterday. Uh, and it was a wonderful experience, but before she went, uh, Amy was, Amy Lyon was with us and, um, Amy, as we were, you know, ministering to April and Dennis, she, she looked at, at April and said, this isn't how God intended it. 
you know, and, and, and this yeah. this is what sin has done yes. to us. This is this is the consequences of our sin, um, the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. It's it's this is the curse, and so death is not good, which is why Paul trounces it at the end of First Corinthians in chapter fifteen. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Huh? What mm-hmm. do you got now? Kind of attitude, you know. Give me your best shot. Come on. Yeah. And and Paul's. Paul's response to death is overwhelmingly positive in that setting. And we have such good things to look forward to as Christians. So we can be joyful, even in the midst of our sorrow, I think is what we're saying. Yes, and that's the difference. Yeah. Right? You know, the world can't do that. No. They can pretend. Right. Like, oh, they're in a better place. Yeah. Well, maybe they're not. You know, the the dead um, who are not in Christ also face resurrection. Mm. And, and Jesus reveals this to the Apostle John in Revelation 20. And, and it's going to be a, a resurrection of terror. They too will have a body because, again, to be human is to be an embodied soul. And so even the unredeemed who, who have rebelled against Christ until the last will have a body, but it will be a body specially prepared for judgment in the experience of God's wrath forever in the lake of fire which we're going to get into um, in a couple of weeks when we get to the great white throne judgment. Um, and, that, and that's a pretty sobering thought, that everybody will be resurrected. Well, I don't know that there's anything more sobering. Yeah, there can't be. Yeah. Everything that we have ever, you know, all horror films that have ever caused sleepless nights for people are but a faint echo right. of the judgments that will come. Well, and what does the author of Hebrews say about this? It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Right. Man, that's sobering. It is. Um, it, it makes you want to examine your heart and examine your soul to be certain, like Paul said and Peter said, that you know Christ. Yes. You know, Examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. Make sure of your calling and election. Um, there's nothing more important. This is the most, if this doesn't sober you, nothing sobers you. And it, and it ought to be something that spurs us on to really take hold of every opportunity that the Lord would give us to share Christ with unbelievers. Mm-hmm. And I know that in our flesh, we struggle to do that, or we say, well, we'll have another conversation. And, you know, and we're not here to talk about evangelistic methods and, and the value of one kind of street corner preaching versus relational evangelism. You know, many books have been written about those things. But the one point I think everybody should be able to agree on is we need to go because it's urgent. And we can't afford to do anything other than or anything less than make the gospel explicit in all of it. Right. And for some reason, that's, that's always been a challenge for God's people. Some are more predisposed to it because of their personalities or whatever, but but we all have unsaved friends. This is why the Lord has put each of us in a different um, realm, arena, or oikos. You know, we all have different connections with different people um, for the purpose of getting the gospel to them. Yes. This is why we've been called. Um, into a relationship with Christ. Well, not it's one of the reasons we've been called. God uses his people to further his message. And the message that they're furthering, that we're furthering, is this gospel message of Jesus Christ and his work for us. Right. 
Yeah. So important to keep in view. And it's so easy not to. It's so easy to, to minimize the reality that we're discussing or to, to make yourself be able to sleep at night or yeah. to, to say, like you just said, there'll be another day. There'll be another opportunity. Um, today is the day of salvation. Yes. You know? oh, Lord have mercy on yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, the, the encouragement, pastoral encouragement to God's people is that, yes, we're supposed to be evangelistic. Yes, we're supposed to look for opportunity. Yes, we're supposed to speak of Christ often, make much of Jesus. But we don't have to be professional evangelists. We don't have to be uh, erudite theologians. We have to be faithful. And God will do the work. He's not asking us to convince anybody. He's not asking of us to, to argue someone into the kingdom. Right. He's saying, present Jesus and then let the Holy Spirit do his work on those who've been called according to his purpose, and he will do his work. Yeah. And in that sense, you know, uh, apologetics um, serves really one purpose. It, it's pre-evangelism, or yes. it's, it's part of evangelism. It is. Helping people to see the the worth, the value, and the reason, the reasonableness of our faith in Christ, being ready to give a reason for the hope that we have, which yes. is not only our hope, but it's the hope of the world, the, right. as in like the only hope. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think it's important to think about things uh, as they relate to evangelism or discipleship in our just daily lives. Yeah. You know, you say apologetics is a part of evangelism, uh, and so is friendship, you know, and yes. intentional friendship. And so is being a neighbor. And so is taking a plate of cookies to someone at the hospital. Or this is all. Our lives ought to be this kind of evangelism. Thinking about opportunities, ways to say something about Christ. You know, my wife is really good at this. She is always thinking of different ways to get Jesus into the conversation, to get God in view with her coworkers where she works and in conversations with store clerks and just thinking evangelistically, thinking intentionally and just by praying in public, you know, just right. being, being a Christian, you know, yes. in front of people mm -hmm. is what we've been asked to do. Yeah. So. And people will either take note and ask or take note and not ask. And mm -hmm. then we take those opportunities to actually share the gospel. Mm -hmm. um, and God does all of it to make sure that not one of the elect will be lost. Right. But he all, he definitely does it in that way. But he uses means, doesn't he? <laughs> that's yes. It. I mean, that's why he left us here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if God was going to um, convert people without our assistance, not assistance as in necessary, but uh, as God's means or God's tools to accomplish this, like the the rake, you know, that you use to rake up the grass or leaves in your yard, isn't doing the work. It's just <laughs> being used by me to rake the leaves. Right. We're the rake. God <laughs> yeah. is the raker, and He uses us, His tools, to bring people into the kingdom. And so it's not like you have to be a genius. You right. Don't, you don't have to be a theologian. Like I said earlier, it's 
it's just being available, being a faithful, um, and God will do the work. Yeah. So if anyone ever accuses you of being a tool, you just say, yep, I am a tool. <laughs> I am a tool. Not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I'm a tool. <laughs> but even the hammer has its place. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. So what else can you uh, share with us about eschatology and maybe summarizing some of our future conversations about this that would help uh, our listeners to get a handle on eschatology? Yeah. And, and I'll just try to keep this brief, but just to kind of orient us Wait a minute. To Did the I discussion. just hear you right? Um, I'm going to keep this stop, brief? Stop now. Or I'm trying to... Okay, you I'm going to try to keep it brief. Okay. Yeah, okay. I don't want to make promises. <laughs> <No>. Take note. <laughs> um, so we're, this is the point in our doctrinal statement where we transition to cosmic eschatology, you know, the end of all things. Sounds but impressive. It does, and it's super exciting because um, we get into some pretty turbulent waters. Um, some would even say tribulational waters. Wow. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> and in the thing, so what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks is is how our statement of faith approaches the things to come. You know, in es- eschatology, eschaton or eschatos um, means last. And so these are the last things as in the sequence. But it's a mistake to think that it, they only show up in the book of Revelation. Um, they're, they're per- they permeate all of scripture, which is why eschatology, even though uh, it's not of primary importance in theology. It's definitely not unimportant. Well, the fact that it's in Scripture uh, and ubiquitous in Scripture uh, should give us a hint as to its importance. Yeah. and Even though it's not as important as our soteriology. Exactly. Like the, the doctrines of salvation. Right. It is in Scripture. It is. Right. All over. Um, you yeah. can't read through the prophets without hitting a ton of it. And so, and actually, or the gospels. I personally didn't really understand the prophets from Isaiah all the way through Malachi until I had really understood biblical eschatology because it all plays to, it is how God wraps up the story he tells through all of scripture. And that's not unimportant any more than any one of us would be satisfied reading a book or going to a movie and having the, the ending be murky or just, un, you know, unimportant maybe even left off, which is what a lot of people do with eschatology by not dealing with these things because they are nuanced. But, you know, and so what I'm going to go through here is just a basic lay of the land. Um, There is within Reformed evangelicalism, which is we would fall squarely in that camp, um, evangelicals who look to the Reformers as our spiritual forefathers um, who recovered for us um, salvation by grace through faith alone, uh, in Christ alone, who who gave us a, a reintroduction to what have, what are called the doctrines of grace. There's complete commonality in holding those things in um, in unity, um, and yet there are four different approaches to the to the last things, um, and every single one of these four are orthodox in the sense that they're within the bounds of historic confessional Christianity. They are. Um, they're able to be held um, loosely with conviction, um, and uh, they are very different from one another. Another thing, too, that I think is important to hear is that that although we do um, differ from others in eschatology, it, it is a primary place of disagreement in the Christian faith. Yes. There are very solid, godly people on both sides of the discussion. Yep. That's really important to know. Absolutely. Yeah. So there should be no judgmentalism 
in regard to someone holding a different eschatology. And we have members at Sin Valley Church to hold to who hold to most or all of these. Um, and we're able to live together and worship as members together. But, you know, for the sake of going through our statement of faith, um, the way that we approach it is taking the book of Revelation as um, a writing about events yet to come by and large. You know, we see the book of Revelation for, for good hermeneutical reason as divided up into a, a few different sections. Chapters one through three have to do with the things that were going on at the time of the Apostle John's writing. Those letters to the churches were letters to real historical churches. Then there was a, a transition to um, the things that would come during tribulation time. Um, in Revelation 4 and 5, we see the church taken to heaven. And then chapter 6 through 19, we see a time of tribulation yet to come that we would identify back with Daniel's uh, 70th week in Daniel chapter 9, which it's a whole different discussion, but, you know, we see it as... It's an important part of the discussion, though. It's why we believe the tribulation is seven years, yep. so we'll talk about that, you know, on a future podcast. Um, and then we look at Revelation 20 as a transition to the return of Christ um, with his church that he has raptured, um, the resurrection of the believing um, of, of believers who have... Um, I'm sorry, at that, the rapture is the resurrection. We, we, we hit on that already, but that's the return of Christ with the raptured saints to establish his kingdom on earth during yep, a That's the new years. heavens and new earth that, that's coming later. That's the initiation of that in 21. So, yeah, right. And right. so we have that thousand-year reign of Christ mm -hmm. on the earth, right. um, which is called the millennium, um, which is what John calls it, the Apostle John. And then there's the, the resurrection of the unbelieving dead for the great white throne judgment at the end of chapter 20, and then there's that, and that's the final judgment where sin, death, and all unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire forever. And then Revelation 21 and 22, like you said, are the new heavens and the new earth, which mm -hmm. is what theologians refer to as the eternal state. And that sequence of events that we just laid out is is the order of events that our statement of faith goes through. And we, we take it that way on its own terms because we believe that there's... Um, evidence within the book itself that it is meant to be read sequentially. Right. And so that view, the one that we hold is called futuristic premillennialism. Okay. Futuristic premillennialism. That's a mouthful. It is. And so the church will be raptured before the tribulation, um, return with Christ at the end of the tribulation. He will establish his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. There will be a final judgment and an eternal state. So we it's, we don't just get that information or those doctrines from Revelation, though, do we? We do not. Yeah, there's Paul speaks of it, right? Yep. He Revelation does. Was, was written by the Apostle John. Yeah. But the Apostle Paul addresses these things, uh, and gives us, I think, clear perspective on the beliefs that we're, you know, describing right now. And Jesus speak, he he speaks on it, doesn't he? Yeah, especially in Matthew twenty four and twenty five. Yep. yep. So the, these things are not just uh, reserved for the study of Revelation. Right. And I think that's important. It is. And again, the prophets play into that framework. They do. In a, in a tremendous Yeah, like Daniel's 70th week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Isaiah speaks a lot about the millennium. Anyways, you know, but there's there's another view. So it's not just a, a long amount of time. Uh, right. Or is it actually a thousand years? Um, you know, it, 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 we, we believe it is a thousand years, mm -hmm. but there is also evidence in other places in Scripture that, that a thousand years could stand in for a very long time. Right. Um, but either way, we believe it's going to be a literal earthly reign of Christ. 
Right. And we do believe it's going to be a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a second view, which is called, you know, the one we have is futuristic premillennialism. Another one is called historic premillennialism. And that would probably be the most ancient of the views, um, going back to the early church. Hence historic. Hence historic. And the difference between historic premillennialism and futuristic premillennialism has to primarily do with the, the timing of the rapture. Historic premillennialism does not see a rapture of the church um, before the return of Christ. It views the rapture as simultaneous with the return of Christ. So, um, you know, if you think about, if you think about uh, what Caesar would do when he went out and conquered a people, um, he, would, he, would, he would be coming back to the city with his host of captives, and the people of Rome would come out as Caesar rode in to meet him turn right back around and go back into the city. And it was a, it was a triumphal procession. And so historic premillennialism doesn't see a, a, a secret rapture of the church seven years before because they would read Daniel chapter 9 differently and they would interpret the Daniel 70th week differently than we do. And so it's this idea that Jesus is returning from heaven. He raptures the church to meet him in the air. And then they come back to earth and he establishes the millennium. At that moment. At that moment for a thousand yeah. years. Then there's the great white throne judgment. Then the eternal state. And how would they how would they des- um, describe the seven year period? Um, I think so. That would have to get to how um, they view Daniel's seventieth week. They would they would have seen the seventieth week as um, prior even, to that. As prior to that, yeah. Um, some people look at Daniel's seventieth week as being fulfilled by the end of the first century. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's especially when you get into these last two views. There's there's an approach to the book of Revelation that these last two views um, may or may not have. It's called partial preterism. I know we're throwing out a lot of theological terms, but we're just given the lay of the land just so that people are aware of it. And partial preterism is basically the view that most of the book of Revelation happened by 70 AD. Right. And, and what happened in 70 AD that was so significant? Yeah, Jerusalem fell. Yeah, the Romans came, they conquered it, the temple was destroyed, Judaic worship. That's what Jesus prophesied. He did. And yeah. it was a big deal because it ended Judaism as they knew it. Right. And from then on, it, it was an amended form because there was no more temple to worship at. Right. And so they look at partial preterists, look at the book of Revelation as something that largely foretold the tribulation that the Jews and Christians would experience as in the Jerusalem, first century, as Jerusalem yep. fell. Yep. And then they look at the parts at the end as being future, mainly the return of the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. So what group, what group would the uh, post-tribulationalists fall into? Well, um, historic pre-mill, mm-hmm. awe-mill, yep. and post-mill. Yep. We are the everybody our, but everybody but us. Yes. <laughs> and by the way, us is not just Sun Valley Church. Right. There's a whole there's a lot of us. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just unique among the other views. Yes. And and so that that third view is amillennialism. And think about amillennialism in terms of the prefix ah, right? Like atheist, amillennial. A meaning no, as in there's no literal thousand-year reign of Christ. It's happening or happened. It's, yeah. And so an amillennialist, see, amillennialism is the easiest one to keep straight because it's basically, um, there are different approaches to the book of Revelation, even within amillennialism. Um, there, you've got partial preterists and not preterists. Um, so you have a whole spectrum. There's no unity on how to approach Revelation within amillennialism. But the one thing that is common to, to all of 
amillennialism is that is the view that Revelation 20, the millennium, is happening now in the church age. Right. That we are currently experiencing the thousand-year reign of Christ with a thousand years being a very long... In our long, spirits. In our spirits. It's yes, a spiritual reign of Christ. Right. On right. the planet, only because we're here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Jesus is in heaven reigning. Yes, and through so us. And so we are under the reign of Christ during this very long period of time where the kingdom is... is Turns out it's more than a thousand years. Uh, yeah, at least another thousand so far. Yeah. Who knows how much longer. Right. And then at the end, you know, that thousand years will end, Jesus will return, and he will bring the new heavens and the new earth and the great white throne judgment all at the same time. Yep. So all those things at the end happen together. Simultaneously. So we are in the millennium now, according to amillennialism. Jesus returns, then there's the eternal state. Right. Um, the last view is postmillennialism, um, which means after the millennium. And postmillennialism, as it's held today, um, is very similar to amillennialism. Um, there's, I think you probably have more partial preterists in postmillennialism that see Revelation as something that happened by 70 AD or at 70 AD and largely was fulfilled. Um, postmillennialism believes that the gospel will flourish throughout the whole earth. The Great Commission will be, will be fulfilled as all the people groups of the world are converted before Christ comes. And basically, the gospel over time will be on an upward trajectory, taking hold and changing civilizations, changing cultures to come under the lordship of Jesus. And when the world has been Christianized... Utopia. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, and this, is, this is the long game. So that's important to keep in mind. Like, you know, World War II and the 20th century with all its bloodiness was definitely a downward turn. It was a setback. It was a setback on a long 2,000-plus-year trajectory of a lot of good happening and more and more evangelism. And so they see that as, as spanning way into the future. So do you think um, post-millennialists are concerned with our current uh, world crisis? Absolutely. And they, and they, and they see the need for, for Christians to engage the crisis for the glory of God to try to, to continue to expand the kingdom and bring those things under the lordship of Christ. But they don't see these setbacks like World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, uh, Desert Storm, um, everything that's happening in America, everything that's happening in the Middle East currently and across the planet. Right. They don't see that as a, an assault on their theology. No, not at all. Because they look at other dark periods throughout the past 2,000 years and go that even through those dark times, there's still been an upward trend of global faith in Christ. Um, and, and, and so they put it in terms of the mustard seed that Jesus said. Sure. It takes root in the ground, and over a long period of time, it grows to become the largest of the trees. That's the trajectory that postmillennialism sees us being on. That's a long wait. It is a long wait. In fact, one postmillennialism I know of, uh, Doug Wilson has put it like this. He, he thinks that in the future, at our Christian schools, kids are going to be cramming for their church history exams trying to remember who came first, Augustine or C.S. Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, That's what I mean by the long game. Yeah, <laughs> and and at the end of it, Christ will come and bring in the new heavens and the new earth. And so those are the four views: Histor you know, futuristic premillennialism, 
historic premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. It's really fascinating. Um, we're going to get into futuristic premillennialism for the last couple of podcasts in our series. Um, but we just wanted to make you aware of what they were, what the four views were before we make an argument for futuristic premillennialism. Yeah, and if you have a systematic theology, Sun Valley Church, you can go to those sections in your systematic theology, Gruden or MacArthur's or Frames, and see all of these different four points and uh, the scripture that associated with those points and the arguments with them. And it's actually a fascinating study. Yeah. Uh, I, I hope that you'll you'll be with us as we unpack all of this and. I know that it'll it'll interest you and encourage your soul as you hear from us as we um, encourage your hearts regarding these things. Any last words, Pastor Rick? Uh, I'm I'm really grateful that we're getting to talk about these things because I think the biggest value for us as um, believers in wrestling through these things is gaining greater clarity and understanding of the unity of Scripture. Yeah. And so it really will have it's worth the work because yeah. a lot of your Bible reading that seems confusing ends up coming into clear view for you. Well, I think I think one of the purposes of the inclusion of eschatology, so much of it in Scripture, is for the encouragement of the saints. Yes. Uh, it, Paul said that, right, to the Thessalonians? Right. when he's talking about encourage, the rapture. Encourage each other with these things. There's a very practical function yeah. to studying yeah. eschatology. Right. Yeah. You, you can make it through. You're going to be all right. Just think of these things. Yes. Yeah. Well, Sun Valley Church, we thank you that you've been with us again uh, for this podcast, uh, Voice of the Valley. Thank you that you're so faithful and and uh, being used by God. We, as your pastors, have been so encouraged lately on how we've seen uh, the hand of God working in you and through you, and we're just overjoyed to be your pastors, and we love you so much and are thankful to God that, that he's placed us here with you. So for now, we will see you, and... Uh, I look forward to being with you again very soon. Goodbye.